Welcome to What the Buck, a monthly podcast produced by Buckhalter, a professional corporation. I'm your host, Richard Ormond, a shareholder at Buckhalter and founder of Ejudicate.com. This podcast is to provide up-to-date legal developments. Our first season will focus on issues facing businesses in the now-emerging post-COVID world. From video trials to employment considerations to privacy and so much more, the world from the legal perspective has evolved quickly during the pandemic, and many of these changes are here to stay. If you want to reach out to us, please feel free to contact us at podcast at buckhalter.com with questions, comments, or suggested topics. Now, on to today's guest. Hi, this is Richard Ormond. I'm a shareholder at Buckhalter and co-founder of Ejudicate.com. I am here with Roger Scott and Matt Drennan, two lawyers from our labor and employment department. Roger is a shareholder in our Irving office, and Matt is an associate in our San Diego office. Uh, gentlemen, if I could have you give just a brief introduction about your practices. Great. Thanks for having me, Richard. And uh, post-COVID world, um, uh, it seems like we're still in it. But uh, I'm Matt Drennan. I'm, a, I'm an associate uh, in the firm San Diego office. I practiced uh, almost 10 years now. I'm in, my, going into my, I'm in my eighth year now. Almost exclusively a labor and employment attorney specializing in primarily in litigation. We've all become COVID experts in uh, in the world today as employment attorneys. It's been exciting to uh, to navigate all of the unanswered questions and kind of come together with the employment world to figure out how we're going to best advise um, our clients, both in California and, and nationwide. And uh, Roger, if you could uh, give us uh, just a, a brief synopsis of, of your career and your focus. Uh, sure. Uh, Roger Scott, I'm a shareholder in the Orange County office. I've been practicing for more than 15 years now. Uh, my bread and butter is labor and employment. In particular, I do a lot of advice and counseling. So I'm on the phone with the C-suite and with the HR directors of companies talking through exactly the kind of issues that we're going to be talking about today with COVID and everything else. Uh, and just kind of over the years, my practice has branched out into other things that uh, were employment related. I do a lot of civil litigation, trade secrets litigation, and even patent litigation, because uh, all these things kind of spin out of employment relationships at any given time. Yeah, they all kind of dovetail together, and they, there's a lot of different ex areas of expertise you need in those types of cases. That makes perfect sense. Well, we're going to focus right now on your advice to HR departments and to, uh, to the C-suite, because... There are so many new developments, particularly in California, about how to deal with transitioning employees from, from work at home back to the office and vice versa, dealing with masks and other office protocols. Um, I wanted to start off with uh, the topic of testing and exclusion of employees and those types of things. I, I imagine that a lot of employers are facing a lot of difficulties right now, um, trying to navigate how to bring their employees back what happens if they're vaccinated or not vaccinated? What happens if they've been exposed uh, to the virus and are uh, needing to quarantine or not quarantine? I'd love for you, Roger, to kind of expand on that and, and really give a couple of uh, helpful bullet points to our clients as to, as to things that they should look out for and things that they should be wary of. Sure. Yeah. I mean, in, in March of 2020, everybody's concern was how on earth do I run my business with all my employees remote? Uh, and how do I keep compliant if I do have employees in person? And, and now it's swinging the other way with people coming back. What do we do with COVID still being around and, and with employees that are there in person? The biggest change recently, and it, it's been so difficult because California is a state, has different guidelines than Cal OSHA, has different guidelines than localities. 
and it's really difficult for employers to sort through it all. It got a little bit more complicated about two weeks ago. Uh, Cal OSHA revised its uh, emergency temporary standard effective January 14th. And they, they did go through all of the guidelines for exposure testing and exclusion. Um, so I guess the one thing is, if you haven't read it yet, you should understand the ETS uh, or ask your, you know, your friendly neighborhood employment council how to deal with that. If basically what you do is you're supposed to have a policy in place about how you respond to any, any given procedure. Um, there's the COVID protocols that came out last year, and now this keep getting revised. If there's an exposure in the workplace, it triggers certain things under the ETS. The first thing is that you have to test all of the employees in the exposed group. The first threshold is just close contacts, which is anybody who's spent more than 15 minutes. And it doesn't have to be 15 minutes in a row. It's 15 minutes cumulative in a 24-hour period is a close contact. So if somebody comes to you and says, hey, um, I think I have COVID or I just tested positive for COVID, you have to round up all the people that they work around and test them. And that testing is, is paid for by the employer um, in order to make sure that this isn't, this isn't going out there, basically, that it's limited to that one person. One of the things that's, and anybody that is positive automatically has to be excluded. One thing that's interesting now is they've really created two different tiers of who has to be excluded and when they have to be excluded if there's not a positive test. And they've done it based around vaccinations. You know, early on in the pandemic, it was kind of announced that, well, you can ask people whether they're vaccinated or not. Now they're creating a two-tier system based or three tiers based on unvaccinated, somebody who's vaccinated but not boosted, and somebody who's boosted. Um, so there's really an incentive to have a fully boosted workforce because those people don't have to be excluded if they're exposed to COVID. Even if they have a close contact, the only reason they have to go home is if they test positive. Otherwise, they can stay at, at work and, and use a mask. Let me, let me ask you a quick question. You said that it's up to the employer to pay for testing. Has it been easy for employers to, to get their employees tested or is that a challenge? Are there a, a lot of clinics available or can they do it on site? Can they bring, can they call somebody to come in? How do they, how do they handle that type of testing? Because I imagine it's happening quite frequently with, with Omicron and everything else. Yeah, really all of the above. If you can, on-site testing is the best way to do it. Uh, you can do on-site testing by bringing on a third-party provider, or you can do on-site testing by, if you can get your hands on them, getting a mass of at-home kits that somebody can just walk into HR or a designated office and take the kit. Uh, the reason I say on-site testing is the best way to do it, if it's possible for you, is, is you have to pay the employee not only to get the test, but you have to pay them for the time that it takes to get tested. That's considered compensable time. So in the lull, let's say between Delta and Omicron, I know that I could go to my test center in Long Beach and I could just drive in and it would take me five minutes. I was supposed to have an appointment, but even if I didn't, I could just drive through and the city of Long Beach would give me a free test. It took me no time. It cost me no money and I could go back. Once Omicron spiked, you're going back to these two and three hour lines. So if you're sending your employees out, the test itself may cost nothing because there are so many free centers that are run by state localities, state cities, counties, but you're obligated to track their time and pay for it. And I know, Matt, you had an anecdote about one of your clients that some somebody was asking for reimbursement, not just for the time. Yeah, Roger, that's right. Um, and, and that's, you know, it's interesting. And we touched on that earlier that, you know, COVID has created all these cross-sectional issues in employment law and for businesses generally. And and one of them is, is, is ensuring that that you don't have wage and hour issues that arise out of testing obligations 
um, and how all of these work with the labor code. Because although the although the the obligation to pay for testing um, is actually written into the Cal OSHA ETS, there's a separate obligation under uh, California Labor Code Section 2802 to identify or pay back expenses, unreimbursed expenses uh, to their employees. And one of those would be testing. So uh, if I go to Dodger Stadium and I have to wait in line for six hours to get tested, that time is compensable to me by my employer. That, that's exactly right. Uh, so yeah, certainly there are free testing centers everywhere. But, uh, and by the way, I wanna make clear that we're just talking about testing here that's if there's a workplace exposure. Right. So if your employees go get tested just on a regular basis because they do, and it's not required by any company policy, this paying for the time and paying for the test doesn't apply. But once you have a workplace exposure and you find you round up that group of people who are a close contact, then yeah, the, the employer's on the hook. Um, so it really does incentivize making sure you have your employees vaccinated if they're willing to do so. Um, and it incentivizes uh, having on-site testing if you could swing it, although it's, it's increasingly hard to do. Matt, let me ask you this. Um, Roger just said something really interesting. If it, Get your employees vaccinated if they're willing to do so. Um, what happens if they're not willing to do so? What kind of uh, issues are employers facing in that regard where they have maybe two or three people that are, are holdouts on getting vaccine, the vaccine? It's certainly a complicated issue that I think employment lawyers, um, you know, earlier in 2020, um, they, they were easy questions to answer because the vaccines were not available. And, and I think that we've been surprised in a way at how implementative vaccination policies have been. So the DFEH has been very helpful, um, actually, and as well as the EEOC in issuing guidance on vaccinations and the power that that employers have under existing California and federal law to mandate uh, vaccine requirements if they so choose. If, if they're going to do it, it must be done in a written vac vaccination policy um, and distributed uh, to the employees. Although under um, existing anti-discrimination laws like FEHA, the Fair Employment and Housing Act, or Title VII under federal law, there are um, still uh, there are still protected classes and, and reasonable accommodations that have to be implemented if um, if there's a, a viable request. The like two, a, like, a religious exemption, for example, or ex exactly the, the the two criteria that are actually um, written into the the statute, uh, at least in California, include uh, religious accommodation and medical accommodation. Although the CDC. Um, if you get into the nitty gritty um, and actually read what the physicians, you know, uh, read and based on what the uh, viable basis for an exclusion based on or for a, a reasonable accommodation based on medical issue, you really have to be allergic per the CDC to a, a single ingredient of the of the vaccine. But what we've seen is most employers, especially healthcare providers in California, uh, because the government has put the, the California government at least has put the onus on the employers to enforce it. They have really accepted those um, accommodation requests and dealt with them and, and complied with um, with the exception, which is to test twice weekly. Let me ask you this. Um, do employers have an obligation to report uh, any type of positive tests, statistics of their employees, um, anything like that? And, and if so, who do they report to? And how do you deal with the privacy issues in that circumstance? That's a great question. And, and, and all these questions keep, 
you keep intersecting, you know, in, in all kinds of different areas of employment law that, that used to be completely segregated. So we could take that in a couple of parts, but in terms of testing, you, you have record keeping requirements under the Cal OSHA ETS guidelines, which are still in effect to a degree, coupled with the, the CDPH guidelines that took effect on, on January 14th. But with regard to reporting, um, if Cal OSHA shows up at your door um, and they want to see uh, records regarding uh, positive tests, you need to, to keep records, inc- including all positive tests. Reporting is, is distinct from record keeping per OSHA. Um, so if you have an outbreak under the ETS guidelines, which is three or more positive cases uh, in the same group of time, uh, then you have to report that to OSHA. Obligatory reporting requirement as opposed to just record keeping. Let me ask you a different question. I I live in LA County, you're in San Diego County, Rogers in Orange County. Are there county differences that are really significant enough to to note? I you know, I watch the, the local news and I feel like LA County has uh, created its own type of um, rules that are above and beyond even what the state has 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 mandated. You know, to be quite honest, there's been so much uh, to deal with uh, statewide. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, pass this one to uh, to somebody who lives in LA County. Um, <laughs> we're my colleague uh, Roger, uh, because in San Diego County, we've you know we've basically followed the the same guidelines uh, as issued by the the, the statewide uh, mass mandates. Yeah, so I mean, LA County is uh, creating its own special little world. I think, Richard, you're exactly right. And I have a lot of clients in in LA County. There's lots of different levels. Like we were just talking about reporting. So in LA County, uh, employers have to report what their what LA County calls a cluster, um, which is basically the same as uh, what Cal OSHA calls an outbreak. So three confirmed cases uh, within a 14 day period. So if you have three, if you have one case, you don't have to report two cases, even you don't have to report. But if you get three in two weeks, then you have to go tell the, the, the county health department. That, by the way, is, is the same uh, what uh, Cal OSHA is requiring. But uh, L.A. has as a slew of other different requirements that go along with this. Um, one is the state of California as a whole. I'm sure everybody knows by now says everybody has to be masked. If you're in an indoor space or if you're in a workplace, you're supposed to be masked. Cal OSHA overlaid on that a requirement that in the workplace, the mask has to be quote unquote high quality. Uh, So if you buy something off the shelf uh, in terms of surgical or KN95, that's probably that constitutes high quality, but everybody has these cloth masks. And so Cal OSHA has now said you have to pass the light test. So you hold it up to the light and see if your cloth mask, which has to be at least two layers, you shouldn't be able to see light through it. Um, I know we're on a podcast, you can't see me gesturing, holding my mask up to the light, but uh, so that's Cal OSHA. LA has taken it a step further and says that as of, uh, as of Martin Luther King Day, a couple of weeks ago, employers have to provide high quality masks to all of their employees and require that the employees wear those provided masks. And they, uh, they don't mention cloth masks in what LA County says is high quality. So if you're in LA, you have to provide your employees either a surgical mask or an N95 or a K95 or something equivalent. I've had a lot of employers come to me and say, well, what if, in it, what if I provide it, but the employee says they want to wear their own mask? And uh, the way that the requirement in LA is written, you really should make them wear the mask that you give them. One, that's the way that the guidance is written is you have to provide it and you have to require them to wear the provided mask. But even if somebody says, I don't want to, you know, I want to wear the KN95 that I brought from home, not the one you give me. 
as an employer from an enforcement standpoint, it's frankly easier to enforce if you make them all wear the same mask. Because let's say you hand out the standard blue surgical masks, you can see the person in the room who's not wearing the mask that you gave them. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's easier doing it that way than it is giving, letting people say, oh, well, I'm bringing my own KN95 because it's the one that I like because it's probably a valid KN95, but it may not be. It may be a knockoff. It may be not compliant. So LA is its own little world in that way. Let me ask you this. What, what's the penalty if you're not providing masks or if someone comes in and not everyone's wearing a uniform mask or, or, or something like that? So um, I, I don't know the specific dollars and cents of it, but just like everything else that's gone on during COVID, the local health departments can come and knock on your door and check to see if you're in compliance. Uh, LA County has been in some situations very aggressive about that if they receive reports of non-compliance. So what would happen is the LA County Department of Health, if they received a complaint or had a reason to come check on you, would come check and could issue you a warning or a fine or something else like that if you're if you're deemed to be not in compliance. We could talk about masks, I, I think, for a long time, but I, but I also want to talk about mandatory vaccinations. I, I have seen a move by the federal government, even the state government, in some instances, at least with public employees, to, to, to have mandatory vaccinations. I know there was an attempt to have private companies over a certain size have mandatory vaccinations. Where are we right now with regard to whether employers need to mandate uh, vaccinations or not? So as of now, private employers in California outside of the healthcare sector or schools don't have to require vaccination. At this point, I think everybody knows in the news that the Supreme Court said that the federal OSHA standard that was going to require vaccines or testing uh, exceeded OSHA's permissions. And basically what the Supreme Court said is OSHA can't do this. If anybody's going to do this, Congress has to do this. So that went by the wayside, which means there is no current requirement. Uh, at the same time, I feel like a lot of employers were kind of waiting on that to shake out. Some of them were concerned about having to implement a standard. Other ones were kind of looking forward to having the government impose some sort of a uniform standard so that they could say, tell their employees, look, it's not me. The government has said that I have to do this. Um, the one major exception, uh, as I mentioned, is, is healthcare, uh, at both at the federal and state level. I think, Matt, you had some comments on that. Right. So while the U.S. Supreme Court um, struck down um, in, in kind of unprecedented fashion, to the extent that OSHA, especially as, a, um, as an agency that regulates health and safety, um, regulatory agencies in general are given broad discretion uh, to promulgate their own regulations. Um, so it's a, it's a big deal when the Supreme Court comes in and says, we think you exceed your authority in, in issuing uh, that regulation regarding um, 100 employees and, and, a, and a mandatory vaccine uh, mandate. So uh, the Supreme, while the Supreme Court struck down the, the 100 employee regulation, they upheld and, and found a viable basis for, um, for a law that, that, that mirrors uh, very similarly what uh, California implemented last June, in, of June of 2021, which required all healthcare, uh, all healthcare facilities and all, and all healthcare workers uh, to, uh, to be vaccinated or um, test twice weekly if they can demonstrate um, a viable um, uh, religious exception or reasonable accommodation for for a disability, and then they would test twice weekly. 
Roger, let me ask you this. Um, there are some nightmare scenarios going on out there right now, um, including including one involving C's candy. Can you kind of shed some light on that? Maybe tell us a little bit about what's going on there. I get a lot of conversations from employers that I work with that they're saying, why should I do this? Why should I have to pay for all this? It's constantly changing. It doesn't make any sense. I don't understand. And all of those statements and questions are absolutely correct. And the answer that I always give them is, if you don't make your workplace as safe as possible, especially in a COVID environment, there's a lot of potential liability. Um, and the most extreme, you know, people have brought cases saying, well, you're not, you're not maintaining a safe workplace. Uh, people have brought cases saying you're not maintaining a safe workplace. And I complained about it and you fired me. So that's, you know, retaliation. Um, but the, the weirdest and most extreme one I've seen is there was a woman who made candy at Seeds Candy and uh, she got sick with COVID at Seeds Candy. She went home and her husband caught it from her. Uh, the employee of Seas Candy had got better, thankfully. Uh, unfortunately, her husband did not, and he passed away. The employee turned around and sued Seas Candy for not maintaining a safe workplace, which we've seen. Uh, but the family did something different, which is they sued Seas Candy for wrongful death for the husband, who didn't even work for Seas Candy. Um, and Seas Candy was represented by uh, a lot of very good lawyers and very smart lawyers who went to the trial judge and said, you can't do this. If anything, this is covered by workers' compensation. This is, you know, an extension of a workplace uh, illness or injury, and so you can't sue Seas Candy for wrongful wrongful death. The trial judge said, "No, I think you can. Um, I, I think you can sue Seas Candy for wrongful death." Um, the very smart lawyers then did an immediate appeal to the California Court of Appeal and said, "Hey, this can't be right. We need you to intervene immediately." Uh, California courts of appeals don't normally jump in like this, but they did here. Um, there were lots of amicus briefs, a friend of the court briefs filed by uh, California associations of different businesses, restaurants, etc., because everybody saw how bad this could be. And the court of appeal looked at it and they said, you know what, we actually think the trial judge is right. This is not covered by workers' compensation. And the, uh, the family of the, the, the deceased man who did, was never employed by C's can directly sue C's for wrongful death. Now, I want to be clear, there's been no finding of liability here. There has been no settlement. There's no dollar signs that are in the media anywhere about this. This is purely a decision about whether an employee's spouse or family member is allowed to sue for wrongful death. But even that is scary enough. Basically, what it says is if you don't maintain a safe workplace, and somebody gets sick and goes home and gives it to somebody else, even that extension that the family member can turn around and sue you as an employer, which seems bizarre to me, but that's the world that we are in with COVID. It seems bizarre to me too. And I'm thinking about all the food service businesses that are out there or supermarkets and everything else where, where there is contact with the public. And if someone from the public contracts it from an employee at, at their local supermarket, what does that mean for that for that business owner? It's, it's, and it's a question mark, right? It, it, it really is a question mark. I, I mean, the C's case didn't, didn't take it that far. You know, the question about why do you need to comply with all these rules and regulations, the answer is to prevent liability and potentially unforeseen and large liability, things that you can't even see around the corner to. Wow, that's really impressive. Well, I want to wrap this up, but before we do, I kind of want to have both of you um, talk about 
um, prevention protocols that companies can uh, institute right now? Um, should they have a written protocol? Should they communicate regularly with their with their with their employees? What types of actions proactively should they take to, to put themselves in the best position? It's a great question, Richard, and it's revived itself with the, uh, the implementation of the CDPH guidelines. Uh, again, that took effect on January 14th because all of our clients and, and, and employers were, you know, if they weren't in compliance right away, they finally got into compliance and and got their their COVID prevention plan in place, which is which they're obligated to do per the ETS guidelines. And there's actually a model CPP module, I guess you could call it, on the uh, ETS Calosha website, and you can it's pretty much fill in the blank. Although um, OSHA has made it um, such that you can't just copy and paste it, you've got to do some of your own work, um, and it includes places where it forces you to expand on what they have um, included. But all the employers, all the clients that, that, that we have that had compliant uh, CPP uh, plans now have to go back and update them with the CDPH guidelines to ensure that their, their employees understand the, uh, the rules. Roger and I, in, in, in talking about you know, doing this podcast, we're, we're talking about unique scenarios we've had. And you know, while the ETS guidelines set a minimum standard, um, we've, been, we've had clients that would like to just test everybody that has a positive test, regardless of their vaccination status. Um, and so we've had to craft these unique CPP plans that include the baseline standards, but also go above that standard. Um, and to Roger's point, um, if you're doing things that are above and beyond the guidelines set by Cal OSHA, um, you're going to be in pretty good shape. Yeah, I think um, to, to Matt's point, uh, employees you know don't want to necessarily come to lawyers all the time because lawyers are expensive. But just to be clear, you have to have a COVID prevention protocol in place, as Matt said. It's online. This California state government has provided a way for you to make your own. At least do that. Even if you do that first and you give it to a lawyer afterwards, it saves us time and we don't have to do as much work, but you are required to have that in place. Um, if you want to go beyond the bare minimum, um, obviously the most extreme would be a vaccine only protocol, which you can put in place legally. You can tell your employees you must be vaccinated or you can't work here. Um, a lot of employers don't want to do that, and I understand why, but just to be clear, you're allowed to do that, provided you give medical and religious exemptions. Um, some employers want to do what the federal OSHA one was going to be, which is vaccine or test. Keep in mind, if you do that, anybody who says they don't want to be vaccinated and you're going to require them to test, you have to pay for that testing. Um, so if you want to go above the standard CPP, those are really your two options. Roger Scott and Matt Drennan, thank you so much for spending your afternoon with me. This has been really informative and really helpful. Um, if uh, anybody has further questions, you can email us at podcast at buckhalter.com and we will direct those questions to either Roger or Matt, uh, depending on the substance of the question. We want to thank everyone for listening and look forward to our third episode, which will be coming out in about a month. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Richard. All right.